Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us Waiting for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to the Stages podcast, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Putting on a show is one of life's great joys. The process creates community, cultivates creativity, and brings live performance to audiences who crave a didactic and entertaining experience from the theatre. Commercial, amateur and educational bodies who wish to procure the rights to present a musical must first apply to the representative of the authors of such properties. Whether you're an established professional or a community theatre, a licence to present a work must be obtained to ensure the intellectual property is protected and the necessary parties receive their rightful compensation. Music Theatre International is one such agent, managing an extensive library of classic and contemporary musical fare. MTI was founded in 1952 by American composer and lyricist Frank Lesser and orchestrator Don Walker. Stuart Hendricks is the managing director of Music Theatre International Australasia and knows only too well the benefits of storytelling with show tunes. His creative and collaborative approach to providing access to the shows for professional, community and school producers, his passion for every work and the form of musical theatre, and his equal respect for the elements of show and business, make him the perfect guardian for this vast collection of shows. Stuart Hendricks, hello. Hi. Happy to see you. Now, thank you for joining Stages in this episode. We're, we're talking to you in your role as Managing Director of Music Theatre International, a role that involves managing a, a vast library of theatrical fare, uh, musicals and, and stage plays. Have you been managing the product of show over the past, uh, oh, it's about 20 months, isn't it now? Because uh, all of our live entertainment has really sort of grind to a halt, so... Have you been busy or has work quietened for you? Oh, no, we've been busier than ever because, um, you know, theatre doesn't stop. You know, with, with theatre people, we have to find a way. So when the world stopped, we had to find ways for people to access theatre in different ways. So we, the first biggest problem was streaming. As you know, when many of the shows were required, the word streaming didn't even exist. So those rights were never acquired. So we had this enormous task to contact hundreds and hundreds of owners to actually try to get these streaming rights to enable our clients to find ways to present them. And the thing that we discovered when we started the project was we actually didn't even know what streaming actually meant. And we actually had to define what streaming meant for us. And we have we, we got it down to three sections. Um, we got it down to live stream, which in the good old days is called simulcast. We had delayed broadcast, which is you film something in you put up later for someone to watch on a certain date. And then we have um, video on demand, which is kind of like Netflix. 
So once we defined that and we went to the authors and we explained to them, I mean, some of these authors are, you know, quite of age and metrics to explain what we wanted. Um, we went about trying to clear as many shows as possible and we managed to do that. Um, but that helped, that helped us out in the interim of the people who were sort of going in and out of lockdown or limited capacities. But when we went to the extreme lockdowns, like we did in Melbourne, there was a greater problem of we actually couldn't even get into the theatre. We couldn't rehearse. So we developed a whole series of musicals which we nicknamed um, Zoomsicles. And these were musicals which were designed and written for the medium. Um, and we did several of them, which were they were cut down to 20 minutes because we realised that in the current environment, nobody could concentrate watching anything longer than 20 minutes. And we rewrote the script. So we actually we avoided people singing together because that was always going to be a problem. So we made sure that there was more solos or if you were having a group number, different people sang at different times. And, um, and that sort of got us through. Um, but at the moment, what we're doing is we're in recovery mode and we're trying to get people to not cancel the shows. We're trying to get them to postpone them and find new times in which to come back to theatre because our audiences are still there. When theatre can come back, we know that our audiences are there and they still want to see shows. Wow. that's Yes, you have been very busy there. <laughs> yeah. As as everybody has adapting to uh, to the new new normal. Oh, yeah, it's a very, very strange time for us because traditionally theatre people have always been so generous of soul and spirit. Whenever there's a crisis, whenever there's a need, whenever there's we need to raise money, we the theatre people came out and we helped. We, we raised money, we worked for free, and now we find ourselves in the position where theatre is the one actually needs help. We actually need the support from the rest of the community to keep us going. Now, you manage the uh, amateur, educational and professional rights for all of the shows, don't you? So you're, you're dealing with uh, three different sectors of, of uh, production houses or, or producers. Yeah. So um, it's, when I call it, I mean, we all call it show business. And it's actually about finding the balance between that, you know, show and business, um, making sure there's the artistic side, trying to get people to do that, but also making sure that the business side is looked, forward, looked after. So... With the schools and that, it's basically working on trying to get them encouraged to do shows and finding them opportunities and access. And at the upper end with the professionals, it, it generally comes down to a lot of business. So, so your, your territory that you oversee, is that just Australia, New Zealand? Is that what we call Australasia? Yeah, so I have Australia and New Zealand, and every once in a while we'll have an Australian production that will go into Asia and I will look after it um, if, if it's something that's you know coming out of this territory, but generally it's Australia and New Zealand. With the amateur companies, uh, it's a really um, musicals and, and and plays performed by the local uh, dramatic company. Uh, they're very important to creating community, aren't they? Oh, in incredibly, very important. Um, you know, theatre brings people together. You know, when you, in in this time of lockdown, nobody turned to maths. We weren't actually going, oh my god, let's sit at home and do maths. <laughs> we were turning to the arts. You know, we were turned to the arts not only as performers but consumers. We were we were watching performances in, in film. We were watching live performances. We were participating, you know. I actually joined TikTok during lockdown and was watching people do silly dances on TikTok. So the art is important for us as a society to not only to engage us, it's to tell our stories, it's to learn, um, and it's to connect. We connect with it. Stuart, what genre of music do you like listening to? Well, I'm a very st people always find my music strange because I I I love the classics. I love Rogers and Hammerstein. 
I'm an enormous Sondheim fan, but I also have a classical music background. So um, I, I majored in classical piano, so I listen to a lot, lots of Rachmaninoff, and I love opera. Um, and then strangely, I've been listening a lot to the, least, the recent single by Justin Bieber and Kid Leroy called Stay. So I kind of go across many genres. And for me, I accept music for what it is. You know, it's, you know I, I don't see any value or grade between Sutherland singing an aria and Mariah Carey singing a pop song. It's, for me, it's all about telling stories and communicating. Stuart, do you have a favourite show? Oh, people, yeah, people ask that question a lot. And people always say, what's your favourite Sondheim show? And it's, I always go, my favourite Sondheim show is the current Sondheim show I'm listening to. Um, but I do have some ones I'll go on repeat. I mean, I love Rags by Charles Strauss, one of my favourite shows. Um, I love Into the Woods. Um, I love Follies. Um, and I adore Children of Eden by Stephen Schwartz, one of my favourite scores. Um, but, yeah, I, I, whatever show I'm engaged in, I'm, I'm, I generally get immersed in. But a lot of Sondheim, a lot of Stephen Schwartz. Um, and then Rodgers and Hammerstein is one of my favourites, all my, my favourite composers. Um, and possibly maybe Showboat. If you want to think about a, a show that I would listen to regularly, I would listen to Showboat, you know, probably about once a month I put on Showboat and listen to it. What were the artistic uh, influences in your, your childhood? Did your, uh, your folks take you off to, to live performance in the theatre? They did, but probably my early years is that probably before you remember, when I was young, we only had three television stations um, and they used to turn off at the end of the night. They used to, the TV station would turn off and you'd get like the patterns. Um, so by default, every sort of Friday night, we found ourselves as a family getting together and we would watch you know, some variety like Ernie Signley or um, Sonny and Cher, and then there would be the golden years of Hollywood. And that was always something we did as a family. And by chance, the golden years of Hollywood quite often had a movie musical. And we loved movie musicals back in the day, like Oklahoma and Carousel and um, Greece. Greece came around the time. So we, it was actually the movie musical was the first experience. And then um, because of where we lived and where we were, we grew up on amateur theatre. And we would see a lot of shows um, by Whitehorse Theatre, who's no longer there, and Clock. Clock. I've seen Clock shows now probably 40 years. Um, and it's funny because sometimes I'll speak to Clock and they'll ask a question. I'm going, oh, I was there. I remember that. I actually have quite a very strong history of all the Clock productions and who was in them. So community theatre is kind of where we started. And only later, and possibly probably... The first major professional musical that I saw, which sort of kind of changed my life and made me want to be in this industry, was Anything Goes with Geraldine Turner um, at the Art Centre. Um, and I remember seeing her, um, seeing her in the show, and it was like watching the last show of her life. She was at like 110%, and that she would do Blow Gable with Blows, and she would get a standing ovation mid-show, um, which is something I'd never experienced. And I just remember not only seeing the show and experiencing her, is experiencing the energy that can come from the stage. That woman made us rise. We, it was like involuntary. And that was probably when I realised this is the industry I want to be in. Oh, it's a wonderful story. I, I remember that production. It was electric. I saw it three times. Yeah, I, I saw it multiple times too, yeah. So did you have a, a library of cast recordings in, in the, the household? That you were that you grew up on. Everyone yeah. had My Fair Lady. Yeah, we had um, we had a record player. Um, 
And I suppose what was big in our house was, you know, because it was the time of Greece. So Greece was always playing because it was a new show. Um, Greece, the movie soundtrack. Um, and then and then the classics. We had the sound of music, Hello Dolly, those ones, um, Carousel. I remember Carousel because I always remembered the overture was so magical. It was such a, you almost felt like the overture was a work within itself. It covered a whole story. And I remember everyone hear the overture, you actually could visualise the whole musical in that moment. Um, so, yeah, so we, we would always have records playing of the classic musical. Yeah. So those classical musicals too, they would always have, um, there was always a couple of songs in it that would become popular songs and, and be on the charts. Uh, and that disappeared for a long time. But I think, you know, working with kids now, I see a lot of youth who are very up to speed with um, the, the entire score of Hamilton or Dear Evan Hansen. So, uh, you know, yeah. the composers are writing popular songs once again. That's one of the reasons why we developed Broadway Junior, because if you look back to the 50s and the 60s, popular music um, and music theatre was kind of in one, you know, Rosemary Clooney was singing Hey There from The Pajama Game and it was number one and Doris Day was singing Secret Love. And so pop music and theatre were kind of aligned. And as we went through history, as we get into the 80s and the 90s, there seemed to be, become a greater divide. All of a sudden, music theatre songs were not hits in the charts. Um, and so we got to the 90s, the early 90s, and our chairman, um, Freddie Gershon, was realising that kids weren't going to theatre. Kids were not interested. And we had all these programs of we should give kids free tickets to come to the theatre. And we discovered that didn't work because they just, they just weren't interested in going. So Freddie said, if we can't get kids to the theatre, we're going to take theatre to the kids. And he went to his licensing team and he said, how many primary schools do our shows? And they sort of said, well, not many because, you know, our shows are too hard. You know, even something like Annie, uh, even though it has children and Annie is a two-hour show with a, with a full orchestra, so he went, he has to fix that. So he went and found a primary school teacher. Her name was Cindy Ripley. And she said, here's Annie. I want you to do the kids and you can do, figure it out. How, how Make this work for your students. And she developed a thing called Broadway Junior, which is our abridged versions of our shows. Um, they're taken down to like 60 to 80 minutes. Um, there's, they've replaced the band with um, tracks and they readjusted all the vocal ranges so that it actually was achievable because nothing worse than kids having an experience where it's negative, where they actually realise that they fail. So by actually adjusting the materials, you allow them to have a greater opportunity to be, to be successful. So that happened in the early 90s and we released Broadway Junior. And then now um, Broadway Junior is all across the world. It's probably the biggest thing in my life. We run festivals, Broadway Junior festivals in five, six cities around the world. We have Newcastle, Auckland, Birmingham in the UK, Sacramento, Texas, Atlanta. Um, and Broadway Junior really has changed things for us. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Broadway Junior. Um, you've also, in adapting them to, you know, 60 to 80 minutes, you're thinking of your audience as well. <laughs> it's great to go and see yes, our kids true. kids perform um, as long as we see, uh, yeah. you know, our, our child or niece or nephew up there. But um, it can be a long sit sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And the great thing about Broadway Junior is that um, it actually introduces kids to not only that we do the contemporary shows, we have a lot of contemporary, but at the moment we're workshopping some new titles like Mean Girls Junior. Um, and we recently released Moana Junior, some of the more contemporary titles, but we also have Annie Junior and Guys and Jones Junior and Fiddler on the Roof Junior. 
And it's making sure that we are keeping the genre and the history alive. We're introducing younger audiences to the classics um, to experience the, the history of, you know, the art form. And I guess you can also uh, modify the adult content, which might be in the, the full-blown productions, uh, like Mean Girls. I mean, maybe there's some language or whatever which you can um, adapt for a youth uh, cast. Yeah, I guess that's what, yeah, one of the major differences with MTI is that we have been focused on. It's about access. Uh, by having, we have a thing called Broadway Junior, and we also have school editions, which you may have heard of. And what it is, it's, like, it's what you're saying, is we actually are trying to make the, the shows adaptable for young performances. So we actually did a school edition of Les Miserables, and we've done a school edition of Miss Saigon, um, and we even done a school edition of Avenue Q, which was one of our most challenging to make a school's version of Avenue Q. Yeah. Um, but what, what we did is we looked at the subject matter and we went, what's the essence of the story? Where are the problem points? And we went back to the writers and the one, one interesting song, there's obviously a song called The Internet's Made for Porn, which we thought we can't have that song. We took it out and the writers said, but we love that song. It must be in. I said, okay, if you want it in, you've got to find out new words for it. So they came up with a, a version called My Social Life is Online. And it's about being addicted to being on Facebook. So we work closely with writers to make sure that we actually can find ways for people to access their shows on all different levels, whether it's a primary school, a high school or a community theatre. Now, I read that Freddie Gershon was uh, recently working on Broadway Senior. Is that true? Yes, Broadway Seniors. Um, we were just, Freddie and I had a Zoom about a month ago talking about Broadway Seniors because um, we realised that theatre needs to be accessible, like I said, to all ages. And we did focus so heavily on youth. And I was speaking to one of my clients in New Zealand, and she's always been president of this. I won't, I won't actually mention this, she's a president. And I didn't know much about her background. And, and a couple of, about two years ago, she started to do YouTube recordings of herself singing. I went, oh, you're beautiful. You've got a beautiful voice. She says, oh, when I was young, I was the ingenue. You know, she was Mabel. Um, she was Sarah in Guys and Dolls, and she'd always roles. And I said, how come you don't perform? She said, in community theatre, you get to a certain age and they make you become the tea lady. Um, there's no roles left for you. So there's obviously there's a generation of people who feel that they don't actually have the ability to perform. So we're developing this Broadway seniors, or um, we're also calling it um, recreational theatre, where we enable people of 55 plus to experience theatre um, it'll be similar to Broadway Junior. It will be reduced in time. Um, we've taken, we've adjusted the keys because we realise that, you know, maybe if you're 70, you're not singing the, you know, the top notes of Poor Wandering One anymore. We have to adjust the, the, the vocal ranges to match. Um, and also the language, the language, um, those incredibly long monologues that may have appeared in the original version. Maybe we simplify it. Maybe we cut it down to a few people. So Broadway Seniors is in development. We've done a few workshops. And we hope to release it very, very soon. Um, we're very excited that what we've seen so far has been some really wonderful case studies because we've done it with a mixture. We've done it with people who are hobby-based, for example, people who are retired, who are 50, who are still working, but they want to do theatre. But we've also done it in nursing homes where people are in residential care and what that means to them. And it's incredible how music can trigger where someone could have been suffering from dementia and all of a sudden they hear Sydney rocking the boat and every word comes back because it's in their body. Um, and there was a lovely crit. We actually get the people to review it. And 
what we discovered in nursing homes, quite often when you go there, it becomes leveling because people in society generally say, you know, I'm a builder, I'm a doctor. But when you get into a nursing home, you just become a resident. And all of a sudden they were doing guys and dolls and someone said, oh, I could build a set. And they said, why? I said, I used to be a carpenter. And someone wanted to do costumes because they used to be. And all of a sudden people discovered what people actually did before they were a resident. And all of a sudden, rather than being in a musical for the 15 people, it became a musical for all the residents because they all realised that for whatever they did in life, they could contribute. So it actually, rather than becoming a musical for a small group, it actually became a musical for the greater community. So we are very, very excited about Broadway seniors taking off. I think that's a splendid project. I can't, I can't wait to see my, my first Broadway senior production. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So studying uh, classical piano at, at uni, did you have career aspirations that you would be a performer yourself? Or? Um, I mean, in my early years, I did play a lot. I used to do a lot of accompanying. Um, but I suppose um, music is several things. It's not only the ability to perform, but it's also like the technical skills of performing, but also the personality it takes to do that. And it was nothing something that I would ever, ever really enjoyed, even though I played a lot and I, play, you know, would play in public and thousands of people. It was not, I never felt comfortable. So it's very rare that you'd see me performing these days. Um, quite often I'll play for our festivals. Um, I'll play for a wedding, <laughs> play for a funeral. But um, for me, it's, I, I, I never felt totally comfortable being in the spotlight. I've never been a spotlight type person. <laughs> Well, you must have knew something because you supplemented qualifications with uh, arts management and business subjects. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I did, first I did a, um, a Bachelor of Music Education at Melbourne University. And while, I, you know, I was doing a mixture of teaching and a lot of the company, a lot of playing, um, recitals and exams, and I always had an inquiring mind. So then I went on and did um, arts administration. And I was actually probably, I think I was in one of the first arts administration courses at RMIT. Um, and that sparked my interest in business. Um, I started to use the other side. And then I went on to do a degree in business systems. So I sort of went from one side of my brain to the other. And then when this job came along, it was kind of the marriaging of both because it is show business. And it's actually using the musical aspect of my, my brain as well as business and making sure that, um, you know, theatres can actually can function and survive. And I quite often will assist young and up-and-coming producers in getting the business side right, the business plan, budgeting, because most theatre companies will fail, not because they don't have the artistic skills, not because they can't put on a show. It's because generally they, some of them can't actually add. <laughs> so, the, you know, the business comes secondary and the business needs to be equal to your, your show, as we call it. Um, so the job I'm currently doing actually marriages both sides of, the, of my study into one. A legal knowledge also would be vital for your job, I imagine. Yeah, you know, I studied, I did legal subjects with, I had, I'm not a lawyer, but I did study law subjects. Um, and luckily, um, I am surrounded by the resources that I need. So um, we do have an incredible in-house lawyer um, in our company that, that deals with lots of the, the big problems. Um, but generally, we're all aiming, when you're in negotiation, it's actually about getting to a point of agreement. And then, the, and then the, the contract is secondary. You know, once we've actually got an understanding, then the document actually is something that just consolidates our belief. And I always believe, I'm, 
I believe in an essence of an agreement. I believe in good faith. Um, you know, we can get nitty gritty down to words, but at the end of the day, agreements about, you know, especially in this time, in the, during the pandemic, you know, we could have said, okay, no refunds. You know, the agreement is the agreement is. But I said, that's not good business. And that's not the essence of the agreement. Our, our agreement is there to, you know, protect all parties. When in times of crisis, we have to find a middle ground to help each other out um, and working with them. Because at the end of the day, we want all our clients to survive this incredible period and come out of it with a fighting chance to move forward. And that's why, um, I don't know if you've read anything about All Together Now. Are you, are you familiar with All Together Now? No, no, no. Is that a, a stage? No. So um, what, what it is, we've, um, we realize, like I was sort of saying before, we realised that uh, music theatre, theatre has always helped others. And now we realise that theatre needs to help itself. So what we did, we, we developed a thing called MTIs All Together Now, which is a concert made up of major, major hits from our shows. And we'll put it together with a package and there's going to be video components. So various composers, I'm not going to mention, we haven't announced composers yet, and, and stars, this would be Broadway stars. They will do video packages in it, you know, they'll say what theatre is, and then you'll be able to perform these songs. And we have, I've got my little bit of paper here. It's quite amazing, the stats. We currently have 2,300 productions in November of theatres throughout the world. We're in 43 different countries. And it's a concert that a, a theatre can do free of charge for over a five-day period and they just get to keep all the money that they raised. And we'll provide them with, you know, the scores and the backing tracks and the logos and the resources to give back. And that's an important thing for us is to make sure that we give people a fighting chance to get back on track. So um, it's going to be a really special event. I think it's going to be exciting. Sadly, because, you know, Melbourne and Sydney are in lockdown, I don't think we'll see any productions of all together now in these two cities, but we have a very large one in Brisbane on the Gold Coast. Um, Ad we have Adelaide Youth in, in South Australia and we have a couple of productions in New Zealand. So um, so that's one of the things we're doing. All Together Now is going to be a big initiative next next month, no, no, November, on November 12th, of theatres all around the world coming together to raise money for themselves. That is brilliant, absolutely brilliant, yes. Mm -hmm. Bravo, mm -hmm. bravo. Uh, you commenced your career with uh, Hal Leonard. So, yeah, so how that came about was quite interesting. So I was, you know, teaching, playing a lot of piano. I was working at the theatre, Mariner Theatres in Merchandise. And I was coming towards the very end of business systems, studying business systems. Um, and I saw this job in the paper and I went, oh, I want to do that. And it was kind of strange because I, I didn't apply for lots of jobs. There's only one job and I applied for it because I read it. And I went, that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I got to start the theatrical department because before that, um, MTI, was administered by a company called Warner Chapel. Um, and at that time, if we know our history, Warner Chapel got into some trouble. They Warner, well, Chapel merged with Warner, and then Warner merged, I think, with Times and became Times Warner. And then it merged with AOL and they got into trouble. And I think at the time they suffered one of the largest corporate losses and they started to downsize. So at the time, MTI needed to find a new home in Australia and they found it at Hallinard. But Helen was a print music company that had no licensing department. So when I got to get there, I had to actually start from literally from scratch. It's like blank computer. I had to develop a, a computer program, um, which 20 years later we, they still use. Um, and we started the MTI journey there, which was which um, next month is 20 years ago. 
Wow, wow. When are you working with Nanette Fru? Is that at um, Helena? Yes, it was. So at the end, so she was at Warner Chapel, and then she retired in the middle of 2021. And then when all the problems started to happen with that, they wanted to move out. They said, we wanted to move across. And she, Freddie Gershon, asked Nanette going, you need to go, can you go find someone to run this company? And she was the one who interviewed me. And I I remember walking into the interview and I met her and, I, and we automatically clicked. I sort of went, we, we're kindred spirits. Um, and I did two interviews. And then she kind of, for the first, probably first two or three years, she was pretty much part-time helping me, helping me out with questions and problems. Um, but even to this day, I mean, the net has been retired now for well over a decade, probably 15 years. But I still, if I have a curly problem where I want to discuss it, discuss it, she's a great person as a sounding board because she is a, is a lateral thinker. Um, she also realises, I mean, I'm going to say something very chauvinistic, sometimes a problem in business is men who are alpha males who want to win everything. But you realise in negotiations, that doesn't work. It's, it's about compromise. And Annette's very good at actually laying the cards on the table going, okay, we're not going to win every point, but where do we want to meet in the middle? And that's really the art of negotiation. And that's possibly the most important thing I learned from Annette is her skill in actually compromising and making sure that both parties kind of win. You know, we have to meet somewhere in the middle and where that somewhere is going to be and it's what you can live with. So Nanette is still a very important part of, you know, of my life as a, as a, as a licensee, as an, as an agent. And, of course, Nanette is uh, a trailblazer in Australia for, for managing performing rights. Uh, didn't she manage the original West Side Story? Yeah, she, um, West Side Story, was, she remembers that that was a new release and she remembers <laughs> getting the record going. She listened to the overture going, oh, I hope this takes off. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know all the sometimes she was she licensed all the premieres of all the sometimes Sweeney Todd and anyone can missile um, all the Stephen Schwartz she remembers when Godspell was a new release um, so she was a very pioneer not only in theatre industry but also in um, the music industry in general because she was quite integral with the beginning of the Australian recording industry. So MTI was founded in 1952 by American composer and lyricist Frank Lesser and orchestrated mm. Don, Don Walker to, to manage his, his own, uh, own works like, like Guys and Dolls. Um, but then they began producing um, or obtaining the production rights for numerous Broadway, off-Broadway and, and West End musicals. Um, that's quite an auspicious beginning, uh, Frank Lesser. Yes, yeah, so Frank, Frank was our founder. Um, and the family have always been a big part of our life. Um, uh, it was only two years ago I got to catch up with Joe Sullivan, who was Your Joe wife. Sullivan Lesser, which is his wife, who was actually the ingenue in several of his shows. And his daughter, who's Emily, who's also was a performer in several of his shows, um, who's still very active, you know, with her, with the, um, her father's works. Um, so next year we, we're celebrating 70 years of MTI, which is quite an amazing to still be an independently held company. Well, prior to, uh, to, to Frank and Don founding the company, how were um, theatrical products managed? Uh, was that by the, the agents of the, of the composers or the creators involved? You'd have to go, yeah, back then, um, 
you know, there were some older publishers, um, but generally, you know, quite often you have to actually write to the composer's agent or the composer's lawyer um, and then trying to get a deal done and trying to get um, materials, which is always a problem because, <clears throat> you know, we do a lot of work in making materials workable because generally the materials come from Broadway. And in those days they were, you know, handwritten. They were on Broadway, there'd be scribbles and cutouts. So by MTI taking it on and administering them, we actually felt a need to make the materials more accessible to amateur performers. So where we could, I mean, back in recent times, we've, we've tried to typeset almost every show. Um, we try to create resources like backing backing tracks or rehearse scores, which is tools in, in, to enable community theatres and schools to have a better chance of success through these wonderful tools to help them out with their production. So that was what MTI really brought to licensing of their products. And then in 1988, a gentleman called Freddie Gershon, who, who we've touched on, acquired MTI. Mm. Uh, he was a, a, an entertainment attorney, um, an author and former president of the Robert Stigwood Group. Um, interesting also, similar to you, he studied classical music at the Juilliard School. He does. And Freddie and I talk about classical music quite a lot. Um, and last year he had a... Was it last year? Yes, last year. I'm losing track of my years. Last year he had a very special birthday. He turned 80. And for his birthday, um, I'm, I created a very special present for him. I got... Um, one of my dear friends, Jack Earl, he's, a, he's a currently a musical director and pianist. Um, Jack Earl's mother was actually my piano teacher. So I've known Jack Earl since he was born. I said, Freddie Gershon, his, um, for, his, one of his first aspects of theatre licensing was a show called La Cache Fall. That's what got him into the business. And I said, would you do a piano duet arrangement of the songs from La Cache Fall as a present? And what I was going to do is I was going to send him the music and for his birthday, we we're going to play a piano duet, but obviously the world changed. Um, but we do talk about piano playing, and we're hoping that once we can get together, we can possibly do a, some some piano duets. He he went on also to to be a producer on Evita and Saturday Night Fever and and Greece and um, and Gallipoli. So he's a man of many parts. Yeah. So he he had a, in the early part of his career he was one of the the major entertainment lawyers you know, working a lot in film, and he represented such people as Alton John and the Bee Gees was one of his major clients. And, of course, he worked on Saturday Night Fever, which actually gave, which launched vehicles for his clients to actually record songs. And the same thing with Greece. The additional songs in Greece was with his writers. And at the end of that period, he decided to retire. Um, and I think he would have been possibly in his 40s. Um, and he became a lecturer, a lecturer in entertainment law, um, and that went on for a year. And in that time, he wrote a best-selling book. And that's what you do when you retire. And then once he had the theatre bug, he went, oh. And so he had a look around. And at that time, MTI was one of the smaller catalogues. You know, the bigger catalogues were ones like Rogers and Hammerstone, which was iconic at the time. Um, Samuel French, which is still one of the biggest catalogues in the world. Tams Whitmark. So Freddie found MTI, which was a good catalogue, but it was pre-Disney. Um, it was pre-Annie. <laughs> So, you know, the catalogue was much smaller. And Freddie took on MTI and Freddie took this catalogue and, and took it literally to another level because Freddie has, what Freddie does have is vision. He has his incredible imagination and through things like all these incredible resources. He said, we want success. We're going to typeset our music. We're going to create 
CD backings, rehearsal products, logo packs, everything that teachers or community theatres need to do their shows. And then he went on to develop, you know, all the education products, which is Broadway Junior, um, the high school editions, and as we talked about, Broadway Senior. So he's really taken MTI to being possibly, one, in my opinion, one of the top licensing houses in the world. And then a next stage of uh, of MTI's history, uh, impresario Cameron McIntosh becomes a partner in 1990 and majority owner in 2015. Yes, so that was that was a big change in my life too. Um, Cameron was always there because we always we represented his shows. Um, he was a client and and was part owner. And then when he became the majority owner in 2015, he came over for the opening of the Les Mis revival. And we were catching up. And I remember it was at the interval of opening night and his publicist came to find me in my seat and said, at the end of the show, Cameron wants to see you at the door. So I went, okay, okay, I hope I'm not in trouble. And I walked out the door and Cameron decided, he says, I think I want to start an office in Australia. Because before that, we had an American office and then there was agents around the world. There was Joseph Weinberger and then we had Helen here. And Cameron was the one that decided rather than having agents, he wanted his own MTI Europe and he wanted his own MTI Australasian. Um, and from opening night, it kind of, with, with anything with Cameron, everything moves very quickly and has a lot of energy and excitement. And from that, we opened up MTI Australasia. Um, and it's been a really fun journey. It's been really interesting. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So Stuart, what does a, a day in the office look like for you? A day in the office now or a day in the office pre-COVID? Well, well, I mean, <laughs> yes, well, that's right. I'm sure there's been lots of a day. Well, pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, um, I was making sure that... Um, Fred, Fred, Freddie always says if you get bogged down in process, you stop moving the company forward. So I always made sure that you, there was always, you know, there's always process. There's always emails to reply and licenses to issue and invoices to process. So I always make sure that I get try to get through the processing part as quickly as I can to make sure that I have enough time to dream, enough time to communicate to clients. And I've always been a very proactive agent. Rather than sitting there waiting for someone to ring me and going, do you have the rights for blah? I'm always will be pitching, pitching ideas, making appointments. I'd always make sure that at least one day of the month, I'd be out on the road, I'd be visiting clients to see them in their space and Whenever I was going to, for example, I'd go over to another state to see an opening night, I would spend the day before the day after checking in to see where people are performing because people love showing off their space, um, to talk about where they're at and also to talk about our shows and to see that we can make the connection. So rather than actually try to just try to force shows on people going, okay, I see where you're at. I see your demographic, the type of theatre you have. You know, if you're in a, a 100-seat theatre with no pit, Maybe Les Mis is not the show for you. What are the shows that suit your theatre or suit your audience? So I do make sure that I spend as much time as I can connecting and learning about theatres. Um, and one of the biggest projects that I've done in theatre over the past 20 years, and it's been different, we do it slightly different in New Zealand and Australia, has been, it's, in New Zealand we call it the consortium. Um, and what it is, it's, it's basically theatres coming together, amateur theatres, to pull their money to build one set in which they share. Because what I realised that if you go up the coast of Australia, you go to like Mackay, Townsville, Cairns, Mount Isa, they're, they're small towns and they only can um, possibly do 
five, six shows in a run. But when you're doing five, six shows in a run, there's a limit to how big you can build your set because you're only making that much money. Yeah. So what I did, it was a long time. I think it was Beauty and the Beast or could have, I think it was Beauty and the Beast. I spoke to Clock and I said, if I get you the tech specs of all of our community theatres, can you design a set that could fit in? I mean, I, I was so naive about, I don't know anything about building sets, anything about technical things. And I, and I spoke to this wonderful guy called Grant Alley, who I've known for a long time through Clock. And we invited some key people out. It was, I remember it was like Neil Gooding. Um, there was someone from Ipswich. And we brought them down and we all saw them at now this show. We, we had this meeting where we started this process where we said, if Clock builds a set of a show, will you take it? So quite often now when we do shows, the set is designed with even extra bits and extra costumes to fit into as many sets as possible. Um, and for example, their production of Mary Poppins that they did at Clock ended up going to like almost 40 different community theatres around the country. Wow, um, that, that's interesting. Until eventually it fell apart. Um, and then you know, <laughs> at the moment, um, Mamma Mia is going around, there's a kinky bit sets going around, the, the Mean Girls set going around. The most fascinating set was the Jekyll and Hyde set, which went around as Jekyll and Hyde for about seven or eight years, and it morphed into the Oliver set, became an Oliver set, and it was an Oliver <laughs> set for a while. And then it came back to Clock when Clock did Jekyll and Hyde 10 years later, back as a Jekyll and Hyde set. So that's been a very valuable thing for us because it meant that the quality of the physical productions in all those regional areas that Jenna would have a set that was, the set was the economy of scale. If you're doing six performances, only have, there's only a certain amount of sets you could build, but they were getting better quality sets that the audience were having better experiences. Um, in New Zealand, we took a different approach. Um, it was for, it was for a Les Mis. You know, Les Mis was the first of the mega musicals and it was perceived as being so production heavy because you need to barricade. Mm. So we brought people together and they formed a different program in New Zealand called the Consortium where rather than one group taking on that, um, the issue of building a set, we work cooperatively. And I go across there usually in September um, and we all meet together and we discuss. And the one that just launched is Mary Matilda as their next consortium. And they do a, a set design by committee, which is good and bad because trying to get a committee to ag agree is quite hard. But we've had incredible success. We've had Sister Act consortiums. We had Wicked. Um, we're doing Matilda. The following one's going to be Kinky Boots. Um, and what it is, it's a collection of societies, and they all will put in, they become equity partners, and they all pay in relation. So the bigger societies, which in Auckland and Christchurch and Wellington, pay a bigger percentage and the small one pays less. And by becoming an equity partner, you get to premiere that show in your town. And then after that, the set goes on to be rented and the original equity partners will get dividends from the rental system. So basically when they build a set, by the end of the set, the set's actually cost them nothing because they've earned all that money back. Um, so that's, a, in New Zealand, it's, it's big business. It's big, big business. It's, some of their sets get up to you know, a half a million dollars and a half a million dollar amateur set is pretty impressive. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, it's helping recycling as well, isn't it? It's sort of, uh, it's wonderful yeah. that everybody can have a go. And, and for me, it also leads into that sense of community. It is community theatre and it's about people coming together. And once upon a time, societies lived, lived and died in their own little worlds. And this is actually about bringing societies together and helping out ones. You know, you know the smaller societies benefit because they get to have a, a quality set they can't afford to build a big set and sometimes they would they, because of their size would pay less for it so they actually 
the bigger societies help out the smaller societies. And actually, this works into the sense of community theatre and what community theatre actually really means. So what does a, a licensing um, agreement involve? What sort of things must be adhered to by the, the licensee? On, on, on which level? So which level are you talking talk well, about schools uh, or community uh, theatres? Well, let's go with community theatre because I, I guess you become the, the protector of uh, the intellectual property of the, uh, of the creators. Yeah. So on every different level, there's different requirements. So when you get to a, like, let's start from the top, you get to a John Frost level, when he's doing productions, generally there's a lot of author involvement and approval. So when you do a deal for something, I'm trying to think of like, the last thing I did with John is public, like Annie, you know, it's a wonderful production of Annie that's done many tours. Um, generally, the authors will be involved. They approve the go-ahead. They'll generally approve the director. And they'll approve the choreographer. In some cases, they approve the designs. Um, with Kinky Boots, that we that's going to happen in New Zealand, both um, Harvey Feinstein's brother, who's the lawyer, he approved the designs. So from the top level, there's lots of approvals to make sure that we're maintaining standards, we're meeting the requirements. But as you go down, the terms will adjust as you go down. For example, with most professional ones, you generally have travel and accommodation included. So for, for the authors to come over and see the productions. But as you go down, of course, those things don't apply. And as you get down to the school level and community theatre, it's actually about making sure that you're protecting the integrity of the work. Because when someone walks in, if some, someone's walking to see, for example, next to normal for the first time this is their first experience that's their experience and that will actually color their experience forever so if they see a bad production or someone who has changed that people leave going oh isn't next to normal an awful show not, not realizing that it's not it's been changed so it's making sure that we're protecting the show people are presenting it the way the authors are so anytime that someone sees that show they're getting what the author's wishes are the, int yeah. the intention of the show and the, the dialogue is not changed or songs are not cut or yeah, and editing it, and making it, it shorter. Yeah. So in the the, the community theatre and school level is making sure we're protecting the integrity of the show itself. Obviously, you can't get around to see every production ever done. How do you maintain that <laughs> integrity? Do, do, do you have um, minions who go out and, and look at the shows for you or um, you have quite no, a good I, relationship? I with the companies. I have a good relationship. And and it's also, it's such a small, the majority of the people do things right. And the majority of the people, um, because it's not, it's a musical, you know, especially in community theatre and schools, you do invest a lot of energy and a lot of love in it. Generally, they are their own protectors of the IP. I mean, they want to do the best. They want to do the honourable thing. It's very rarely that people are doing the, it's, it's, it's the, it's the exception rather than the rule that people will do the wrong thing. Um, generally, people will self-manage. If someone does something that's not right, generally that gets back to me. You know, yeah. There's there's a phone call, there's an email, um, and then you have to address that. But generally, I would say ninety nine percent of the people do the right thing, which is quite lovely. I, I love an overture. It's a, I find that a, such a, a vital part of a musical. But with contemporary fare, we're fighting mm. the disappearance of the overture. Aren't we? Yeah. Um, what, what's your opinion on that? You Obviously, I would imagine you love an overture. I love an overture for what an overture means. An overture is, you know, you've had your day, you've been at work or you've been doing something, you've, you know, you've argued with your mum, whatever has happened in your life. You come in there and the overture is going, okay, 
your world is gone. The world is outside those doors. We're now entering the world of Rigadoon, whatever it is. And here is the language, the musical language. Here is the feelings you need to feel. You know, it's a contemporary feel. It's a, you know, it's a, a classic feel. You're now in Camelot. You're now in, you know, you're now in India. You're now in China. And that music is there to design to actually bring the people into the space in order for the story to start. So I love the overture because the overture is about bringing us into the room and into the world. Yeah, a moment of transition, isn't it, from um, yeah. from 2021 to, as you say, any of those worlds. Yeah. So, Stuart, what happens on the other side of this pandemic? Are you expecting an explosion of shows? Um, gee, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? But one thing I have realised is that um, I think many industries will change because I think some of the industries will disappear. But I don't believe that our love of theatre, I don't believe our audiences are gone. I think people, when theatre comes back, and we saw that in Melbourne, when we had, between January and January and, and May, we were kind of back in, you know, things exploded. We had theatre was happening, and you know, theatre was 100%. So we know that when we can, theatre can come back, uh, we know, I've, I really feel our audiences will be there. And I think they'll come out and support theatre in great numbers. Um, because I think we've never had theatre taken away from us. We always took it for granted that theatre would always be there. And now that we've had taken it away from us, I think we will value it more. And, you know, like I sort of said, theatre is about community. And I think we will come back because we need to be together. We need to share our stories. I think we're going to see different types of shows. I think we'll see different types of productions. I think in the next couple of years, um, you know, money will be very tight for a lot of theatres, a lot of community theatres. Um, I think there'll be lots of sort of things that are positive and fun, uplifting things. I'm quite sure there'll be a lot of school productions of things like Mamma Mia and Guys and Dolls and all those things that are enjoyable um, and fun of spirit. Um, but I definitely I definitely feel that when theatre's back, you know, it'll be back in a big way. What a fascinating and essential role in our industry. The birth of a production commencing with the permission to perform managed by the guardian of the intellectual property. I trust you gained some terrific insight from our conversation with Stuart. The vast library of shows represented by Music Theatre International and a whole host of extra materials and information can be found at their website. Check it out, www.mtishows.com.au And hopefully you too will soon be putting on a show. Thanks to my guest in this episode, Stuart Hendricks. Thanks for joining us. You can check out all of the episodes too by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. You'll be able to find all of the previous guests that have been featured in Stages, on Stages. I'm Peter Ryans. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.